Good morning, everybody. How are you? Are you enjoying your treats? It's a good way to start a Saturday. Well, I know that many of you don't know me super well. Um, as Colleen said, my name is Christy Ware, and I'm a Philadelphia native. In fact, I was born in Delaware County. I bleed green for the Eagles, it's true. I've got a little bit of that Rocky Balboa spirit in me, always, always fighting, always rooting for the underdog. And uh, that being said, I'm a little feisty. Um, I, back in the day, I had really big hair. Um, and to be honest, when I first read this passage, I was like, uh-uh. Oh, no, he did not. He did not tell me that I need to pray for Cowboys fans. He did not tell me that I need to be quiet. And he certainly did not tell me how to do my hair. Right, but guys, we know that our God is good. And we know that his word is his message of love towards us. And so instead of wagging my finger at Jesus, I tried to come at this passage with open hands. God, what do you have? What are you trying to say here? And so that's the heart that I'm coming at this with, and I hope that together we can, we can come and say, what do you have? What, do you, what is your message of love for us this morning? So can we just start by praying for God to be our teacher this morning? Lord God, we long to know you more, and we long for you to be our teacher. And so God, this morning, if there is anything that is merely my opinion, I pray that that would quickly fade away. But God, what is your truth and your eternal truth? May it go deep into our hearts and bear a harvest, bear fruit, Lord, that lasts for eternity. We thank you so much that your promise is that your word will not return void without accomplishing its purpose. And so we, we bank on that this morning. So be here with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this passage is one of the more contested passages in scripture. But right at the very core of this passage is one of the most beautiful descriptions of salvation. And so I actually want to start in the middle and talk about what is very clear from this passage. Okay? So if you would, I'm going to be using the Bible a lot. So if you have it in front of you, it's going to be very helpful. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I want us to start in verse 3. It starts here by telling us that God is our Savior. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, phrases like this can just kind of roll off of your mind. Like, you don't even pause to think about it. Sure, God is our Savior. No, think about this for a second. God is our Savior. This was written in the time of the Romans. They had millions of gods, okay, hundreds of gods, and they were all feuding up in the heavens, right? You know, making people melt and shooting arrows at one another. They didn't really care about humans. Our God, he cares about us. He also is our savior. We're going to learn about that more in just a second, but this is an amazing truth. It also says in verse 4 that this God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All people. Not just people who are good. Not just the Jewish people. Not just people who are cute or clean or healthy. God desires all people to be saved. And then it continues in verse 5. It says, For there is one God 
Again, in the time that this is written, this is a revolutionary truth, that there's only one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Now, what is this mediator business about? Well, our God is holy, which means he is blameless, without fault, without sin. We, on the other hand, well, we are, we are full of blame, full of faults. We rebel against him in hundreds of ways every day. And those two things cannot combine. They just can't be in the same space. And so we needed a mediator who could live our sin, a sinless life for us. And then he died a sacrificial death. This is Jesus. And he became the one way that we can communicate with God. He is our mediator. And in verse 6, it continues. It says, he gave himself as a ransom for all. This is a really great, great picture for us. We had a debt of sin that we could not pay. And Jesus, who didn't have any debt whatsoever, paid that for us. He became our ransom. Now, these are the eternal, very clear truths at the core of this passage that reveal to us the heart of our God. That he desires for all to be saved. We're going to continue and look at the rest of the passage, but I wanted us to start there. Because we need to hear that from our God. That he cares deeply about us and that he provided a way for us to know him. Now, we're going to continue to look at at the context of this book and the historical context, and hopefully that will give us a frame of reference for what what else he's trying to say. This is the book of 1 Timothy. It was not written by Timothy. It was written to Timothy by the Apostle Paul. Timothy was his apprentice. And he had asked, Paul had asked Timothy to stay in Ephesus to help a very young church to figure out how to do life as Christians. Paul had taken missionary journeys. He had gone on these three very long voyages and he would stop at various cities and tell them the good news about Jesus and start churches. He went to Ephesus, this particular city, three times. It was a big deal, this city. It was the fourth biggest city in all the Roman world. It was the gateway to Asia. And um, it also had a very important temple, the Temple of Artemis, or Diana. And frankly, that temple was the center of culture in that that city. It, It commanded the economic situation. Everyone was really involved in this cultic practice, sorcery, witchcraft, all over the place. So when Paul went and preached the good news of Jesus, people responded. They had never heard anything about the hope that we have in Christ. And many people responded, and they burned their different idols and different symbolic things of witchcraft. And there, was, there were people who gave their lives to Christ. However, they had no idea how to do church. I mean, think about it. They weren't Jews and had been to synagogue before. They had never done church before. They're coming from cultic practices. And so they really needed help to figure out how to conduct themselves in the household of God. So um, Paul is asked Timothy to stay in that town and to, to help this church figure it out. In fact, in chapter 3, it tells us exactly why Paul is writing this specific book. In chapter 3, 
verse 14. It says, I hope to come to you soon. Oh, by the way, Paul's in prison as he's writing this letter. So he hopes to come to him soon, sure. But, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, yeah, maybe he needs to stay in prison, uh, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Okay, so there it is. He, he's helping, the whole point of this letter is to help people figure out how to behave in God's, God's family. One other thing that you should know that was going on in the church in Ephesus at that time is that there were a whole bunch of false teachers, and they were trying to invade the church. Okay, just from the context of the book, I'm going to give you a list of what was happening with these false, false teachers. First of all, they were straying in doctrine. They were preoccupied with myths and genealogies. They misused the law. They were immoral. Their consciences were seared. They were forbidding people to get married and to abstain from certain foods. They craved controversy and quarrels, and they used godlessness for material gain. Let's sum that up by saying these were bad dudes. Okay? So, Paul is trying to make sure that people hear the accurate message of Jesus. Right? God wants all people to be saved, and we don't want anything standing in their way. So Paul's first command is right here in verse 1. So let's take a look at that. It says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. His very first command to the church very first thing is to pray. And he doesn't just say it once. He says it four times. Now, mom's in the room. Am I right? That if you say something once, it's probably not going to happen. Two, maybe four times is how many times you need to say something for your children to, to actually respond. All right? So Paul is saying, because this is super important, I'm going to say it four times to you, that we need to be praying for all people. Remember. Paul is in a Roman prison right now. The Romans had treated his people group, the Jews, horrifically. When Jesus was in town, they wanted Jesus to lead a revolution against the Romans. They hated them so much. And Paul is saying, pray for those people. Pray for all people. Pray for the people who have me in prison. And then he says to pray for the kings and those who are in high positions. Who's the king at the time? It's the Emperor Nero. Guys, he's even like a bad, bad guy. Really bad guy. He's like burning Christians for fun. Okay? He, and Paul is saying, pray for him. And then he's saying, pray for peace. Again, these people wanted a revolution. And he's saying, pray for peace. I have to tell you that as I was studying this passage... I kept wanting to get down to the part that was tricky, honestly, the part that we're going to study later about women. I couldn't get past these verses. I returned from Rwanda in June to an America that is very divided, an America that is in very tumultuous times politically. And my heart hurts. And I couldn't get past these verses. They kept saying to me, pray. 
Don't be anxious, pray. And I just think this is such a good word for us today, to be praying for all people, people we don't understand, people that we maybe have a hard time with, for our leaders. This is a good word for us today. In this century, this is a good word for us. Now Paul continues with a couple of other commands. So looking down to verse 8. It says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. A couple of things that stood out to me from this verse. Again, this book was written for us to know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God so that others might be able to see Christ clearly. Is this just talking about church behavior? No. It says, in every place. It's not just how we conduct ourselves in church. This is about how we conduct ourselves in our daily lives. right? Worship is not just on Sunday morning. We worship God through all that we do, whether it's washing dishes or going to work, driving our cars, in every place. We are to represent him. And then it says that men should lift holy hands. Okay, what is that talking about? Well, before men would go um, into the temple or the tabernacle, they would have to wash. And they would wash themselves. And that was also symbolic of what they were doing to their heart. They were preparing to meet with a holy God. And so when we come to worship, we should be coming prepared that we're ready to, to talk with God and commune with him. And, it, and then it leads to without anger or quarreling. Now, we don't exactly know what these guys were fighting about back in the day, but let's think about this. If we came into our worship service tomorrow and there's a couple of guys duking it out in the back, are we going to be able to pay attention to what's happening, to, to what the pastor's trying to say? Absolutely not. That is distracting. And so... Again, because God wants all people to be saved, he's asking the men to put aside their differences so that people can see God for who he actually is. Our conduct reflects on God. So that's what he tells the guys to do. Now, what does he tell the ladies to do? All right, here we are. Verse 9. It says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. At first, I was like, um, that likewise doesn't really seem to be a likewise. The guys were told to stop bickering and were told what jewelry to wear. Like, that just doesn't seem to add up to me. But again, I had to come back to this idea. This is about how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in the body of Christ. This isn't just some, like, random list of rules. This is to point others to Christ. So, in the context that the women of Ephesus were spending absorbent amounts of time and money on their hair. They would be these elaborate... Um, braiding that they would have done. And then they would bedazzle it with all sorts of jewels. And then they would walk into church. Now, ladies, if somebody came in with a multi-million dollar haircut, right, or a hairdo, 
you would probably having, be having a little bit of a hard time worshiping because you'd be so amazed by what you're looking at in front of you. But also, these, these hairdos were also a little bit um, edgy in, in the sense that they were provocative. And so what Paul is asking is that the women dressed modestly so as not to attract attention to themselves, but to point towards Christ. <sighs> Ladies, if I had come in here this morning in my bathing suit, would you be paying attention to anything I'm saying? No, right? I mean, come on. You'd either be com- like comparing your body to my body, or you would have been like, oh, that's a really cute style. I wonder where she got that. You would not be thinking about Jesus. And that's the whole point of what we're doing, right? The whole point of our lives as Christians is to point others to Jesus. So that's why he's asking the women to be modest. It's because he wants all people to be saved. Now, continuing from there, it says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. We're going to come to verse 15 later, so we'll stop right there. Okay. Now, remember, one of the problems of the church in Ephesus were these false teachers. And it seems as though many of the women were being led astray by them. Verse, chapter 4 tells us that the women were not getting married and that they were spending all their time gossiping. And 2 Timothy, the, the next letter that Paul writes to Timothy, says that women were giving in to these false teachers. It's very clear. They were giving in and they were also giving in to worldly passions. So Paul is concerned for these women, and he's concerned that these women may lead this little fledgling church astray. And he refers back to another time in history when a man stayed silent and his woman got them into a heap of trouble. And that, of course, was Adam and Eve. If you were here for our last Women of the Word retreat, we heard about this. Colleen spoke on this in Genesis 3. There, Adam, who had received the instruction from the Lord, right? He did not step up to lead his wife away from the serpent. So they're all in this... Adam and Eve are in the garden together. The serpent starts talking to them, trying to deceive them. And Adam stays quiet. And Eve just completely engages with the serpent. He knew the truth and did nothing to stop her. Adam abdicated his role as leader and Eve usurped him. Now, this is kind of potentially hard to imagine. So let's imagine that you have a friend who's on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, right? And you know the phone a friend? They ask you to be the friend because you are the foremost expert on American history, okay? And eventually you receive a panicky call from your friend and they're like, oh my goodness, I just can't think anymore. I can't remember. Okay, okay, okay. Who was the American patriot who rode through the Boston countryside? A, George Washington. B, Paul Revere. C, Donald Trump. D, 
Captain Crunch. And they, they are so nervous they don't know what to do. And so, what do you as a good friend do? You know, you, you kind of just, you know, gently massage them like, oh, you know, you really could go either way. You know, whatever you think is best is fine. You know, and just completely say, oh, I'm not an expert on this. Go ahead, you can do whatever you want. That's what Adam did. Is that what a good friend does? No, if you know the right answer, you step up and you say, Paul Revere, right? But Adam abdicated his role and let Eve run with it. And Paul is concerned that the same thing is happening again in this church, that the men are stepping back and that the women are going forward and they're going forward in false doctrine. So he tells the women to be quiet and to submit to the male leadership. Thankfully, Shainu is going to tell us a little bit more about submission in her talk. But I have to wonder if this is not just as much a call to the men to step up as it is to the women to back down. Another just modern day example. I used to be heavily involved in singles ministry. And it always seemed to me like the girls were the ones running around doing everything. We planned all the events, got everybody signed up. And what did the guys do? They brought soda. This used to drive me bonkers. And I started to talk to my brother about it. And he's like, well, Christy, you volunteer for everything so fast. You don't give the guys a chance. And I, I wonder if there's a little bit of that going on. I mean, I think this is, it's a much more serious situation here. But do we give our men the chance to step up and to lead? Or are we just pouncing on them because, well, we, we're doers. We can go and we can do it. So I also want to be very cautious about something here. This does not mean that we are any less than in the kingdom of God. Absolutely not. Paul, in another letter to the Galatians, you might want to write this down because this is a good one. Galatians 3.28 says that in Christ... There is no male or female. That is not talking about gender, right? There is male and female. What it's talking about is that our standing in Christ is equal. In fact, this is kind of bizarre, and I hope you can track with me on this. In Jewish culture, the son was always the one to receive the inheritance. We are considered sons. We are going to receive an equal inheritance, Women, we are not less than. We are different, but we are not less than. So I hope you hear that. And in fact, let's go down to this really interesting verse, verse 15. Okay. It says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if we continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, this does not mean that if you don't have kids, you're not, indeed, you know, you're not saved. What this is talking about is, again, referring back to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. You might remember that there were, after Adam and Eve sinned, God came and he talked to them and, and he, he really he handed out curses against them. But inside of those curses, you know, like pain and childbearing, he also gave, there was hope in there. And what he said is that the offspring of the woman, a child that she would bear, his heel would be bruised by the serpent. And again, the serpent is is Satan. And that the offspring would crush the head of the serpent. Now, 
I just came back from a year in Africa and there certainly were snakes who came up on my doorstep. If you want to make sure a snake is dead, you do not cut off its tail because it can keep living. You take care of its head and you, you cut its head off and then you smash it to bits. And that is what Jesus did to Satan when he raised from the dead. He smashed Satan's power. Now, ladies, this is amazing that the Son of God, who has the power to crush Satan, was born from a woman. That is amazing that she was strong enough to carry the Son of God, that she was gentle enough to care for him. That is awesome. The God of the universe would come through a woman? Amazing. So ladies, I'm going to start wrapping up our, our time, my time with you right now. I hope that you have heard that God wants all people to be saved. And I hope that you've heard that the reason he, we have certain you know, he asks us to dress modestly or, or to be submissive is not just to keep us in a box. It's actually so that we can point others to him. If you don't know Jesus yet, my prayer is that you've heard that he desires you. He desires you to be saved and he made a way for you to be saved. And if you do know Jesus, I pray that you will see his heart for the whole world to be saved. And that, yes, you will start by praying for them, praying for the world, praying for all to be saved, praying for our leaders, praying for peace. Pray, I, I, I hope that we will make peace with others. Because if we're bickering, we can't represent Jesus well. Another action point for us would be that we do. We, we think about our modesty. Are we dressing in a way that is attracting attention just to us or attracting people to Christ? And I hope that you've heard that we need to live out our role as women. Yes, with submission, but also in faith and in love and in hope that God has designed us for unique purposes. You know, I started by reading this passage with my finger wagging it, you know, uh-uh. But now I'm hoping, my prayer is that this finger won't be wagging at Jesus, but rather pointing others to him. So let's pray together. Father God, we, we humbly come before you. It is amazing that you entered our world to save us. And it is amazing that you were born of a woman. And it is amazing that you continue to, continue to use us, ladies, as much as we, we fight with you sometimes. God, thank you for being our Savior. Thank you for continuing to work in our lives. And Lord, would you continue to teach us what that looks like, to follow you, so that others may know you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We stand with that song.